Representation matters. When Mulan appeared on the screen in 1998, she was only the third princess of color and the first from Asia to enter the Disney canon. She's an empowered protagonist, a fighter, an iconoclast, kind of a nerd, and a true hero. But full wokeness was not yet a twinkle in the Disney Corporation's eye in 1998, and the film suffers from some very problematic attitudes toward other cultures that were inexcusable even considering the standards of their day. I'm talking, of course, about the virulent anti-Hun racism that pervades the film. The Chinese are proud to have built a giant wall to exclude the Huns from opportunity and prosperity. Sound familiar? And they continue to market it and profit from it at the expense of the global reputation of the Hunnish people. Disney animators reinforced this sinocentric prejudice by portraying the Huns as simultaneously subhuman and otherworldly, using the most offensive stereotypes. Of course, the Huns did have yellow glowing eyes, but ancient accounts seem to confirm that their eyes glowed not with malice, but with wit and charm. Did they stand eight feet tall? <laughs> no! The tallest Hun on record was only seven foot nine in his tallest murder boots. The fact is that because the Huns left no written record of their culture, other than curses scrawled in the entrails of the vanquished, we are forced to rely on biased descriptions of them in Chinese and European manuscripts that appealed to the xenophobic and fundamentalist popular sentiments of their time. Worse even is the fact that Disney animators, predominantly Asians, were working from sketches produced largely by artists of European descent who almost certainly had an ethnographic axe to grind to avenge their ancestors whose spinning skulls were used to hone the blades of Hunnish axes. Of course, the Huns were portrayed as murderous and merciless in those exaggerated and possibly falsified accounts just because the Huns murderously and mercilessly decimated the Ostrogoths, the Visigoths, the Eastern Roman Empire, and much of Gaul and Italy itself, extracting great ransoms and leaving salted earth in their wake. Again, the histories are written by the victors, and even though the Huns were technically the victors in these cases, the histories were written by the history victors, which is to say the people who wrote things down to make it seem like they won even when they lost, like Norman Mailer. In fact, many references to the other side of Hunnish culture permeate our language, passed down through the oral traditions of pre-literate people like the Swiss. The term honeybunch, for instance, entered High German as a word for the lighter side of total war, when a fun bunch of Huns would overrun a town and squeeze everyone until their eyes popped out. Or honeysuckle, a colorful Galician way of describing a lust for sucking the marrow out of life and out of the broken femurs of your enemies. Anyway, yes, Mulan was a groundbreaking film and is celebrated even unto this day. It's been remade just recently as a live-action thing, starring Lin-Manuel Miranda as the hilarious talking donkey and Sandra Oh as Vice Principal Gupta. It promises to be worth all $200 million they spent on it, but let's hope that Disney spent a little bit of that cash to offer the Hunnish perspective. Or better yet, add a glowing-eyed Hun princess to match Mulan's swordplay and dragon fetishism with some skull-binding, corpse-mutilating, literal horseplay. You don't meet a girl like that every dynasty. On today's friendly fire, Mulan.
Welcome to Friendly Fire, the War Movie Podcast that is travel size for your convenience. I'm Ben Harrison. I'm Adam Pranica. And I'm John Roderick. All the best lines in this movie are, are Eddie Murphy's, right? It's such a weird use of Eddie Murphy, isn't it? Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna go against that vein. He uh, refused to come to Disney to record it, so so they had the they came and recorded him at his house. Is what I read. This is such a weird version of Eddie Murphy, right? Because it's like mid to late '90s self quarantine, like weirdo Eddie Murphy. Uh huh. Yeah, now we are all Eddie Murphy. The, right. <laughs> the best part I thought of the Eddie Murphy performances were the f- very few times, but there were a handful of times where he showed sympathy or or where he got kind of small. But the rest of the movie, he's just doing a kind of slightly different and lesser version of Robin Williams's genie. Yeah, I think that that was definitely like why this character was written into the movie was... Remember how great it was when we had Robin Williams in Aladdin? And on paper, the math of that totally pencils out. Like, you could really see that happening. You could even see it coming so close to being that. But, like, Mushu isn't even the top in the top three characters in this film in terms of importance. He's he's no genie. And it's the importance of Mushu that, that makes the Eddie Murphy character diminished, right? Yeah, I guess so. It sounds like Ben's riding for Mushu a little bit. I, I liked the performance. I, I mean, he's a weird character. I agree. I definitely agree that he's like his D story doesn't add that much to the film. It's hilarious to see these voice actors cast sort of against type. Like Eddie Murphy has got a little bit of darkness in, in him, but like Miguel Ferrer. He's got the 209 series online and now he wants to show off. Is a fun bit of casting. <laughs> Robocop's Miguel Ferrer and then like B.D. Wong from Oz. Like, yeah. <laughs> I, th- I think I mentioned this last week that this was the Disney movie that I didn't go see. The first one that like came out during my childhood that I did not go see. And I also kind of think as early in the era where there's kind of stunt casting of famouses. Like maybe I'm wrong about this, but I kind of had the sense that like earlier animated films didn't make as big a deal about the famous people doing the voices. Mm-hmm. And I had such a fun time going like, Oh my God, that's totally George Takei doing that voice. Yeah. And then like the gratification of seeing the credit come up later, which is part of that era of peppering it with little Easter eggs for the grownups that have to watch it. Right. Some, you know, that was the thing about the genie, right? That nine, nine tenths of the genies, references and riffs would have been completely unintelligible to a child but then somebody gets like burned on the butt and sticks their butt in some cold water and the kids laugh and then the genie comes back in and does an ethel merman impression and then you know (laughs) a lot of people don't realize this but most of the dialogue from for the genie in aladdin is just stuff that was left over from good morning vietnam (laughs) (laughs) I, for sure, not having seen this, because this movie came out, what, 1998? For me, I didn't go see it because this was like peak Adbusters years for me. And <laughs> and so I was hyper attuned to the fact that Disney was making mind control content and that this movie was, this movie had a strong female lead, but it was cynical about it. And, you know, I was really, really at my most... um 
attuned. Hey, what you don't realize, man. Yeah, exactly. Like I, I was, I was, uh, just a couple of years off of my Chomsky peak. <laughs> and so didn't go to see this because I was like, just like, this was the era where big media was, you know, my sworn enemy. Yeah. I haven't yet summited Chomsky peak. I'm, I'm still <laughs> setting up base camp uh, about a mile below the summit. I don't know if it's the same where you guys are, but, uh, but where I am, we're trying to actually flatten the Chomsky curve. Yeah. You uh, want to for sure. <laughs> <laughs> so when this movie started, you know, watching it uh, recently on my phone in the bathtub, I was really charmed by it at first. It had a kind of sly sense of humor. I liked Mulan. I thought she was charming and she had, she was being given that standard Disney treatment of like, she's a tomboy, a fish out of water. I was wondering if the, if it was going to be a musical for a long time, because there, the, the first musical number is, is a ways into the picture. There's just not that much music in it, is there? There's only three big songs. But I felt like the I felt like the story was setting up in a in a pretty charming sort of Cinderella way, and I liked the little cricket as the familiar, the kind of non-talking cricket that mm-hmm. got into scrapes and and uh, screwed everything up. And the whole the whole picture, I was kind of like, okay, like I'm along for this ride. This is pretty fun, and it was. The introduction of Eddie Murphy, where all of a sudden, you know, where they felt like we need a we need a big name comedy thing to make this movie fun. And he just felt so forced upon the movie. And then and I didn't find him funny or charming. And maybe if I were eight years old, I would have. He's definitely coming from a cultural uh, milieu that is so alien to the story that it's telling like. Like they didn't ask him to be any less Eddie Murphy than he w- he would be in an Eddie Murphy movie. Even though they, you know, this movie was written and directed and conceived of by white people who live in Florida, uh, they made s- <laughs> they made some effort to cast Asian actors in most of the main roles. And this is a strange moment, but the, in Disney time or whatever, or and in cultural time, but I can't tell whether Eddie Murphy was just a top name star. Or whether they specifically needed to introduce an African-American character into a movie about China in order to uh, in order to fulfill something that they felt like they needed to do. But also the character feels pasted on like like Mushu is not is not important. It's not just that he's the fifth storyline. If you took him out of it completely, it'd just be a better movie. Yeah, I'm actually I'm I'm surfing some uh, some BitTorrent websites right now, and I see the the uh, <laughs> the, uh, the fan edit from J Rod uh, of Mulan with all the <laughs> with all the Mushu edited out is uh, getting a lot of seeds. Yeah, for sure. It's only 45 minutes long, but it's killer. <laughs> the tone of it feels weird because, like, we're made to understand that Mushu is one of the many family ancestors or ancestry adjacent beings that that are sent to help Mulan in her mission. But like that's such an opportunity to try to understand what the culture is like with respect to how it views its own ancestors. And instead we get we get none of that. Right. We get slapstick ancestry. And I wonder how that played in some countries. 
they hoped this would be a big hit in China and it wasn't, right? Yeah. I mean, part of that was just how the Chinese government allowed it to be played because they had like very tight restrictions on how many foreign movies could be released in country. And like Disney was kind of trying to curry favor with the cultural authorities in China after having made Kundun, which was seen as politically provocative by China. But I mean, if we got a version of Mushu that was like golden child, Eddie Murphy, like just a little bit dialed down, maybe. Uh-huh. I wonder I wonder if it would have played better. Like, I'm not asking for the film to like pay utter respect to ancestry, but like this just seemed disrespectful utterly. I think that's a good observation. If that's the part of it that makes it such a genie ripoff is that the dragon... The small dragon is a frenetic character. Now, what if the dragon was played by Eddie Murphy, but it was a fat, lazy dragon? Same amount of Mm. opportunity for humor. Well, they would have had to take all those fat jokes from the one character and give them to (laughs) Mushu. So would Eddie Murphy have been playing five different fat dragons and then they'd all sit down at a dinner table, like (laughs) eating eating a bunch of beans? Way more fart jokes. That's right. (laughs) If I was my real size, your cow here would die of fright. I also think that part of the calculus here has got to be, we are making a movie about horse-mounted warfare for, a, you know, and going for the G rating. Right. Like we're trying to make a, a war film that little kids are going to go see. How do you do that in a way that is palatable? I mean, there's a lot of stuff that would be scary for a, a little kid in this. The, the Huns are super orientalized even in a even yeah. in a movie set in China like the like the the lead hun the super bad guy Sean Yu is given yellow cat eyes like almost lizard <laughs> eyes and fangs yeah and they have claws they are very scary John did you watch this with your daughter out of curiosity no in an incredible twist <laughs> on friday night i came downstairs because there was loud TV happening. And when there's loud TV happening, I usually am like, what's going on down there? I came downstairs expecting to see an episode of Clone Wars, which is her current TV diet. And she and her mother are halfway through watching Mulan. Wow. (laughs) And I said, what are you guys doing? And they were like, oh, we're watching Mulan. And I said, A, since when did you guys start watching a movie and not invite me to come see it? And two, did you know it's my friendly fire movie this week? And I was going to watch it either tonight or tomorrow. And they were like, no way. What? And I said, wow. Well, great. I guess I'm not going to sit down and start watching this halfway through with you. So good luck. I hope that you're fine. I'm going to go live on a sailboat. (laughs) And so, no, that's what happened to me. Wild timing on that. Um yeah, speaking of the of the Huns, there were actually some pretty well-made points in the comments uh, about this movie on IMDb by TurkFan69. Oh, really? Said that they were a, a racist depiction of people from that part of the world. No way! The Turks all the way across the world are offended on behalf of the, the Mongolians. <laughs> How wonderful. <laughs> Turk fan 69. Is this the one moment where we might agree with Turk fan 69? Yeah. I, th- 
I, I, I never thought it would happen, but I was like, Turkman 69 is not totally off base here that this is like a dark skinned Disney villain that is an offensive portrayal. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I should mention at this point, you guys, that I know you're not on Facebook, either one of you, but um, I got a message from our uh, Facebook fan page. Uh, our uh-huh. administrator, Ruth, there wrote me and said, hey, I need you to review this uh, person trying to, to join the group. And I looked and TurkFan69 has a Facebook profile <laughs> and was trying to get added to our Facebook group. <laughs> And it turned out that Ruth believed from listening to our show that TurkFan69 was a real person and she was she needed to talk to me about whether we should actually let him join. <laughs> TurkFan69 is a character on the show. Yes, but TurkFan69, like many things that were characters on the show, has been has become real in the world. Right. Yeah. And right. so TurkFan69 is going to be pretty mad about this, I think. Hmm. Already so is, is Turkfan69 now a member of our Facebook group? I, uh, <laughs> Just espousing like nationalist <laughs> Turkish. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, that would be in character. If you're going to be the character, go all the way, Turkfan69. That's what I'd say. I, what yeah. I suggested to Ruth was either this is a one note joke and the person will forget about it after a week. Or this yeah. is a person that is sincerely going to impersonate Turkfan69 on our on our fan page and annoy everyone and in in that case all the more power to them if they can stay in character yeah my favorite person to follow on twitter is richard nixon (laughs) (laughs) what what do you guys know about the like historical veracity of the story of mulan more more of like a like a bedtime story than a than a real historical event. As a story-making project, I just really loved the idea of Disney sending people over to China to live there for a while and and do research. I thought that was a great part of the pre-production story of this film. Yeah, it's based on a poem and the the at least the thumbnail sketch of the poem is pretty much the thumbnail sketch of the movie. I don't think the poem has the the romantic interest that Mulan develops for her commanding officer. That romantic side of the of the film was a real surprise to me. Like this like there's totally like a female gaze moment when he's walking around with his shirt off and she gets a little a little hot under the collar. And <laughs> it's like a movie for kids. <laughs> and it was the part of the movie at the very end when she comes down from having, you know, been rewarded by the emperor and gives him a hug, which, you know, shocks everyone. And the entire crowd has gone from being the most rigidly sexist and hierarchical culture in the universe, as far as we can tell, to completely accepting that she is the hero of China without really any right. resistance. The crowd just is mollified. But her love interest... Well, they'll do what they're told by that emperor. Right. The emperor bows first. That's right. The emperor bows first. The the Adam Pranica story. (laughs) (laughs) But this is such a 1998 version of the, the story of gender dynamics or the story of feminism. 
Like it's a strong female lead and she is legitimately strong. And at the end of the movie, she, you know, no, no man comes to rescue her. So in that sense, it's, you know, we're halfway there, but she does have to disguise herself as a man to accomplish anything. And the worst part is that Li Shang, who up until that final moment, really never gave her a single prop, even though she completely not only saved his ass, but was responsible for his victory. And you can see in the parade that he and his men are ashamed of themselves because they're in a victory parade that doesn't include the person that's responsible. But when she confronts him or when she comes up and says, like, the Huns are here, he blows her off again. And the best part, the best moment, I'm sorry that I'm rambling, but the best part is when she comes down from that award ceremony and he goes, you did a good job fighting. And she goes, thanks, and walks off. And if the movie had ended there, (laughs) that would have been, or if she'd just gone back and and reunited with with her father and roll credits. But he shows up and the scene and the movie ends with her falling in love and getting married, presumably. It has to like finish Disney movie math or they won't let it go to the theaters, right? Like that was just like, like the princess has to marry the prince. There must be no remainders to Disney movie math, right? He did not deserve her love except for the fact that he's like a beautiful. Yeah. He's very fuckable. Yeah. Like even at the end when he when he brings the helmet back and gets invited to dinner, he's basically there to receive affection and not give it, right? We never see him give it. I mean, maybe he fawns over her at dinner and is like, I used to think you were a man, baby, but I kind of am still into that actually a little bit. <laughs> it's totally just a very strange end to the thing. If that movie was made now, I think that Li Shang maybe could have expressed total interest in her as a, as like a young male soldier. And then when he finds out she's a woman, be like, yeah, even well or weird, but grandmother Fa would be like pawing at his groin the entire time. (laughs) Horny grandma is a great character. Always reliable comedy. Yeah. I mean, the film is being made today. Like as of this recording where, uh, Oh, right. We are in the window in between the initial announced release and the delayed release date of live action Mulan. And I wonder, I wonder if they revisit some of these things. Maybe we should add it to our list. Or if it's a shot-for-shot shot remake like Psycho. <laughs> you know what? This episode comes out... Am I doing this math right? This episode comes out one week after the current posted release date for live-action Mulan. No way. So TurkFan69 is going to be commenting up a storm that timing is really gonna bite us (laughs) (laughs) you know what everyone i would encourage you to set up a a mute on twitter that mutes the the phrase why didn't you because (laughs) releasing a friendly fire episode about the 1998 film the week after the 2020 film comes out is going to get a lot of those (laughs) it's it's going to be rough Putting myself back in 1998, it did feel like this is Disney, like, making some pretty emphatic moves in a new direction from the kinds of movies they made before, because she's not a princess. Like, she definitely is coming from, like, a 
fancy family with a name like the the emperor knows who her dad is it's cinderella adjacent though right she's underestimated and lesser than anyone else in her family until until she's not total cinderella as far as the war moviness of it the scene where the huns come over the horizon and ride down the snowy slope is one of the best war movie shots of any movie we've seen. It's amazing. And the pacing of it is uh, incredible. Like, you know, the smoke clears and you see Shen Yu and then like a couple of other guys and you're like cutting back and forth and back and forth. And every time you cut back, the shot gets wider and you realize that there's like thousands of guys up on this ridgeline. Yeah, it's a nice reveal. Oh my God. Incredible. So incredible and, and really taking advantage of what animation can do. The film never telegraphed that that was possible, though, up until that moment. I think that's what made it so effective is like you get the classic Disney animation up until that moment. And it's so breathtaking once it finally reveals itself as possible. Like, right. All the cells you've seen up until then have been like, oh, yeah, I've seen like I've seen this in 10 other Disney movies. But that's the moment where you're like, this is a new Disney technology being deployed here it's got to have some computer generated elements to it just just the particle effects of like the snow coming up under the feet of the horses as they run down the mountain but like you get the like pity your stomach dropping out like you're on a roller coaster when you cut to the hawk perspective and like swoop over them what a great piece of film design that the a, a scene that catches your breath to that extent is also the the kind of critical character moment where Mulan figures out how to beat the bad guys by causing an avalanche instead of using their one last cannon to kill one of them. I mean, I, I liked the, the way that that appears multiple times in the movie that Mulan overcomes her lack of physical strength by being the smartest one, seeing a, seeing a canny solution. There was an article in the I don't know if it was the New Yorker. There was an article just that I read just a week ago about uh, the Marine Corps finally letting women go through boot camp, not segregated. They were forced to let women into the combat arm of the Marines, but they still keep them segregated in boot camp. And this article talked about like a little squad of Marines that were trying to accomplish some bridge crossing. And it was a mixed gender platoon and there was a you know a guy was in charge and the and he was like okay well we'll just muscle these things across the bridge and there was a you know a gal who said well why don't we attach him to this rope and it'll make it a lot easier and he blew her off this is like this is a real (laughs) article uh that just (laughs) that i just read a week ago they figured this out 1400 years ago in china (laughs) and so these marines were like busting their ass trying to get this stuff over there and they realized they couldn't do it and she stepped forward again and was like why don't you use my idea the one about the ropes and they were like okay and they did it and it was it was exactly what they needed to do and to whatever degree an article about women in the marine corps found that particular event and wrote a whole story about it it's it's definitely like feature writing for a magazine but it's basically the Mulan and that's a, that's a, you know, that's a wonderful 
way of characterizing her participation and making it not seem like she went through one week of training and all of a sudden is a combat master. This is the classic war movie where the recruit winds up in boot camp, learns how to be a soldier, then goes and like participates in a couple of battles. Like most of the training in boot camp happens during a musical number where <laughs> we watch a bunch of soldiers go from being like incapable of doing anything well to like shooting apples with their bows and arrows and like running across posts in a in a lake without falling over. And like she's, you know, mostly being discouraged from continuing then when none of them realize that she's a girl from that standpoint, like the like her force of will is like. Is kind of the the main thing about her character that's a real different a different look and feel for a Disney film. She only gets the respect of of the other recruits, Yao and Ling and Shen Po, when she grabs that arrow from the top of the post, right? Like she never yeah. impresses them with her combat prowess. And this is related to the story that John you were telling that that you just read about, like the the smarter not harder motif here is what makes Mulan great and what and what makes her a respected part of her troop. Yeah, it's the the argument that Marines have always made is well, you know, a woman doesn't have the strength to carry one of her fellow soldiers off of the battlefield or whatever. You know, she's not going to be strong enough to do the job. Um and it's funny that you know, the Marines are still making that argument 22 years after this movie kind of um, makes it and then breaks it. It should be required viewing in the uh, Marine training facility. <laughs> I was just going to say the, the scene of the Huns coming down the mountain was the preamble to what I thought would be when this film went from G to PG. <laughs> you know, this is a war film. At some point, we're going to see death or see death's aftermath or or something and i and i braced myself for that moment and you know snow really helps a scene like this if we're burying an army under snow we're not going to see the suffering of that kind of death but i was very surprised at the moment where mulan's army comes upon the burned out village and how much you are permitted to see there related to the death of of her countrymen yeah, we see the entire army on a smoking battlefield. I, I utterly respected the film's like ability and interest to go like, here's actually what happened, kiddo. And this is how painful it is. That's a devastating sequence. And I think that maybe the thing that makes like pulls the emotional punch a little bit is that we don't really know anyone. Yeah. Or we don't see anybody we know because I guess we know uh, Shang's dad. But we just see his helmet. We don't actually see him dead. We mostly process the deaths through like her picking up the dolly and, and hugging it. Right. I did not understand the doll's symbolism because the doll appears for the first time when the eagle brings it to Shen Yu. And it's like, wait, is the doll a, like a voodoo doll of, of Mulan or is the doll something from- I was totally thinking that. <laughs> I thought the doll was a suggestion that even children were killed there. Well, I know, but then the doll reappears. Did the eagle plant it there? Or is there is that a second doll? 
Why does she leave the doll? And Shanyu's able to do like CSI about like where the emperor's troops are based on like what the doll smells like and what kind of hair it has stuck to it and stuff. <laughs> the eagle lives after this film, right? Lives as a chicken. I'm going to believe that the eagle feathers grow back. Now that's what I call Mongolian barbecue. I didn't think about it until after I'd watched the film, like uh, all of her soldier buddies having to dress as as concubines being kind of the shoe being on the other foot. But uh, a, an internet pedant actually noticed something that was incorrect about oh. that scene. Uh, during the finale, Yao uses a banana as part of his disguise. However, the banana is the sort of yellow and thin specimen a modern Western audience would recognize. This kind of banana cultivar would not be bred until centuries later. The bananas available in China in the era in which this movie is set would have been rounder and of a different color. Hmm. What color were old bananas? <laughs> so a, a girthier banana is what it would have been. <laughs> yeah. And I think that banana is being used to simulate a boob. So you want, you probably want a more period appropriate banana. Yeah. I mean, depends on your taste in boobs, I guess. What kind of boob uh -huh. verisimilitude you're going for? I don't know how you guys like your boobs, but I like them long and skinny, yeah, like bananas. Ad old Adam torpedo tip. <laughs> <laughs> I wondered about that, like how much, I don't know, like if I was a nine-year-old, would this all be lost on me or would I understand it? As the father of a nine-year-old girl, it's very interesting just watching in general the kind of fourth generation feminist overlay in children's entertainment now. And it's also the, the way that that race is depicted in children's entertainment. Kids in their lack of sophistication are not super aware of race. They're very aware of gender race. They're kind of not, but you know, kids sort of self gender, but the entertainment yeah. that's made by adults for them is trying to, in a lot of cases, trying to correct for problems in adults by getting to kids. So I watch movies with my daughter all the time, and and su I'm super conscious of this because movies start off by kind of looking directly at the child and going, women are strong. And my daughter often, or at least used to, kind of turn to me and go, of course. And I go, I know. <laughs> you know, so the so very early on in her media consumption, the media was telling her that there was a question about women, whether women were strong or not. And although it's answering in the affirmative, the whole fact that it raises the question might I watched it on my daughter's face go, well, if they are, then why does it need to why are people yelling it so much at me? Like, I get it. Women are strong. I never doubted it. <laughs> right. And so movies like this that are, you know, they spend the whole first part of the movie telling children that women are not as a way of kind of trying to counter the fact that adults are wrestling with that. But from my daughter's perspective, it's like, well, I didn't know all this about women being concubines. Why would I? Why do I need to? The first 15 minutes of this movie are a lot about teaching you what the gender roles even were back then, because it's, you know, it's pretty different from even 1998 
you know, like the the expectations of of women in the year 600 AD are in China are like are pretty rococo right. by comparison. And I mean, like, I wondered if that like mitigated some of that. Like, if the expectation of a woman in this era is paint your face bright white and remember all the admonitions in the correct order and do all these like you know tea ceremonies of course a little girl is going to be like fuck that <laughs> not interested you know it feels like the film that you make for a 16 year old who is now ready to be made aware of the fact that life for women over the centuries has been very different than it is now but when you're making content for an eight-year-old when you consider what the what the messages of a film like this might be to the little girls who I think we could agree this is targeted to, like the the inspiration of a Mulan superficially that girls can do anything that boys can do. But I think there's darkness in digging a little bit further, which is like Mulan's success only occurs while she's in man drag. And then she so quickly goes back to her own life at the end. It made me sad at the end of the film that that she was so quick to uh, reabsorb the culture that diminished her before she went on her mission. And I wonder, yeah, like like I'm putting myself in the mind of the audience, and the mind of this audience is a G-rated audience, so it's a simplistic audience. Like, is the main takeaway the first one? Or is it the second one? And I've got to believe that it's the first one, right? Like, like Disney's not going to make a film that that tells girls that, like, you know, you can go off and have your adventure as long as you come back and snap to square uh, the way things were before you left. Well, that's that's the story of the actual poem, I think. She comes back from the war, refuses all government positions and accolades that are offered her and goes back to live a simple life in her village. And it's kind of the Rosie the Riveter problem, right? That you have a generation of women that realize that they can do whatever they want and they can do any job as well as men can. And then the war is over and you get all these guys coming back that are like, what's for dinner, honey? (laughs) You know, and we basically lose, we lose two more generations of women to a kind of like, well, domestication is stronger than your liberation. Yeah. That's that, uh, the argument that was sort of posed in their finest, right? Like the the women talking about like, are they going to make us stop being development executives at film production companies? Turns out, yes. <laughs> it feels like this movie ends too early. Like the film has a chance to say something big. And I think with another 10 minutes, it might've had that opportunity. If we were given a glimpse into what Milan's life is, maybe she does marry Shan Yu, but maybe their marriage is is quite unconventional for its time. I I really believe that this movie could have, if it had just ended on him saying like, wow, you really are a good warrior and her going, thanks. A woman needs a man like a fish needs a bicycle. (laughs) (laughs) Well, at that point, it's the viewer can then project at her equality for the rest of her life. Like you could, you could form all kinds of stories in your imagination about how the rest of her life goes. But the film chooses to, to pull the film car into the driveway and turn off the engine. I wonder if part of that is the, 
direct to VHS sequel wagging the third act dog. <laughs> Whoa. That, like Disney makes these franchisable uh, animated features and then make a trillion like musical spinoffs and rides at their theme parks and maybe an animated television series eventually like like all of these things have to be potential spinoffs depending on how big of a hit the you know initial film is because like i watched this on the disney plus app and like the second it was over it was trying to get me to watch Mulan 2, which, you know, like who even fucking knows what happens in Mulan 2 based on the exciting sequel to the ancient poem? You know? Well, two things, right? This movie is a Disney princess movie and Mulan is the only one of the Disney princesses that isn't a princess. And I've had people tell me that because the emperor gave her that medal, that she was princessified or something at the end, thereby qualifying as a princess. Uh, oh wow! It like <laughs> yeah, it's right. on a technicality, huh? So Chewie hasn't been a princess all these years no. himself. Well, Chewie is a princess in a different way. Uh, I've just recently learned that Chewie and R two D two are actually the two stars of the Star Wars franchise. Mm. Um, <laughs> but also, if you think about the movie itself, at the beginning. Her family wants her to be a proper girl and get married, partly because her father doesn't want her around anymore, cre uh, creating all this havoc with the dog and the chickens. You know, there's an idea about the beginning of the film that it's like, look, the, the real tension here is get Mulan a husband. And <laughs> and we, we spend the first act uh, realizing that Mulan is never going to find a husband if she keeps fucking up this bad. And then we have an entire like adventure in the middle war movie or whatever, but really the only stakes after saving China, both before and after saving China are what the fuck is Milan going to do with her life? She can't just sit around here being a milkmaid and the only other option is get married. There is no third way except to be a horny grandma and you gotta, you gotta live a long time. <laughs> That's such a weird kind of tragedy, though. Yeah. Like, if that's all she ends up being. Well, now, wait a minute. You know, being a wife and mother is no, there's no shame in that, Adam. That's not what I'm saying, and you know it. <laughs> Listen, if you could end up being a wife and mother, you'd it'd be- a Oh, I'd jump at the chance. I'd, I'd leave all this behind, that's for sure. <laughs> in a second, I'd give it up. Why doesn't she just moulin in <laughs> so she can have it all? We can do it. I mean, I think yeah, I think if, if she had taken the the government job, if she had taken the government job of being the obsequious mustache administrator, that would be a cool movie. But that's not what happened in the poem. So you know, they're picking and choosing here. Yeah, Mulan Two is about a bunch of domestic infrastructure programs <laughs> that she's trying to get off the ground. Well, no, it's about her Benghazi, right? Oh God, yeah, yeah. Her emails <laughs> become a big a big concern. <laughs> Every death we see on screen is obscured by a beautiful animated explosion. So it occludes every every soldier that buys it. Yeah, I wonder if Disney got some notes after uh, after Bambi. Don't show the burning bodies. <laughs> yeah, you know they decided to make a feature film with their Florida production studios, and they were originally going to go with one about the Great Raid and mm -hmm. show a lot of people burning in uh, you know 
fuel oil bunkers. <laughs> they decided against that. John, you probably have a better recollection of this, uh, you know, for recency reasons, but like the Shen Yu character seems like a fairly unmotivated bad guy. As Disney bad guys go in this era and before, do you get the sense that they were more like that they had more of a backstory, a more reason for being other than destroy as as Shan Yu seems to be? His motivation is that the emperor built the Great Wall of China and he's here to just put put it in his face. Right. That's his. He feels like the emperor built it at him. Yeah. Right. And he's just going to show in a you can't get past this kind of way. Yeah. And so it's just it's just a dare. Um, the but the thing is, a lot of Disney villains, their primary villainy is vanity. If you think about mm. the wicked stepmother, she's entirely motivated by vanity. Uh, Snow White is. No- oh, and the hero of this film has to suppress her vanity to become the hero there of the is. story. It's the vanity problem. She cuts her hair. <laughs> a lot of Disney stakes are relatively low, but there, you know, is there a thing that motivates people to greater evil than vanity? Definitely my favorite sin. <laughs> In that sense, you know, you can kind of, uh, you can put vanity at the heart of a lot of big crimes and that that vanity was the most evil smurf well she was also the most evil of prince's <laughs> acolytes <laughs> anyway that 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 feels like at least from the, the standpoint of a villain enough and i don't know what it is about the walt disney company that wants kids to uh and i think it's just that the the opposite of vanity is selflessness which seems like the seems like a great virtue to teach children who are all born psychopaths. <laughs> I mean, if I've learned anything from this episode, it's it's that. <laughs> all friendly fire films get ratings and reviews on this show, even Disney films. Uh, Disney films not having a great track record on this show for either. I wonder if Mulan will do any better than the great Operation Dumbo Drop. (laughs) We'll never know because we're not giving it the same rating system. That's true. I'm here to give Mulan its own custom rating system. Of course, it's going to be that arrow that Li Shang shoots to the top of that pole for his army to bring down. It's the main test. It's the test of the army. He doesn't quite believe in their skills. Pretty great for Li Shang to shoot the arrow and then go cool as jets in a tent for two days (laughs) watching to see what these idiots are going to do to get the thing down Uh, only Famulan can do it but can this film rise to the challenge of introducing us to a new Disney princess while at the same time teaching us about a different part of the world than a Disney film ever has one to five arrows will be how we rate it John you started to list all of the virtues that this film signals toward a young viewer and these are these are great i mean the inspiration to be yourself even when it's difficult uh you know how important it is to sacrifice your comfort in favor of of being brave the desire for independence but also a desire to be in a relationship uh and by that i mean like both friendly and romantic famulan is someone who has a lot of troubles with both I think 
the story moves so quickly and in such a straight line towards defeating Sean Yu that it really doesn't allow us much of an opportunity to think about those things or for our characters to grow that much. And I think part of it just might be the G-rated Disney film ability to tell a story that complex. I I shouldn't grade it harshly for that. This is a G-rated Disney film is only going to be what a G-rated Disney film is. But I think my favorite challenge on Friendly Fire is trying to review the film in the context of of the year of its release or the place of its release. And I think there's an added challenge to Milan in this case because it's not just about a film released in the late 90s. It's also like the context of modern Disney Pixar films versus classic Disney films and what they're able to do. Like the modern films being more spectacular visually and nuanced narratively. And this film is like a very classic Beauty and the Beast, Lion King style film. And it's easy to forget that that's what Disney films were like most of the time. I like Mulan, the character, a lot more than I think I like the film. And I think the film constrains the character in a way that is unfortunate, but also in keeping with what a G-rated film is going to be. And so that's the challenge, right? This is not a rating the film, keeping in mind the context of its year and, and its country of origin. It's, it's almost like a contextual Disney challenge that must be graded and considered. So I think considering that, considering this film's peers, I think it's It's one of the better Disney films, and it's one of the better Disney messages. But I think I'm just going to give it a a medium strong score of three and a half arrows. And and I think it's because I hope it gets kids to ask some questions about, you know, about the role of little girls in in different societies. And, And I hope little girls don't take it as the wrong kind of inspiration at the end. You know, I hope it starts some conversations, but I hope the big takeaway at the end isn't like go and have your adventure and then go home and and get married. And that's that's sort of the effect of this that uh, that I really wonder about when it's all said and done. And I wonder if that's not the reason why this film sort of disappeared. And while critically it might have been like one of the better reviewed Disney films, this isn't a film that's in the zeitgeist the way that the others are. And I wonder if that's why. Like, like Mulan didn't continue to be a hero. She went back home. So three and a half for me. It's hard to know what parts of this you can and can't criticize from like Disney's decision making standpoint, because it is based on an ancient poem. And so like interrogating the morality of the ancient poem is a different project than interrogating the like you know like the message that the disney adaptation of it is trying to to put out um there's a chinese made live action mulan as well that came out in like 2004 or something like that as far as i can tell it's not available for streaming anywhere outside of china so that's even more than the disney live action remake of this movie i would love to have been able to compare that to this just to see like what the you know like the people that are living 1400 years later in the 
country that this is set in are doing when they adapt this story for a modern audience. Um, but uh, as a film, I think it's really awesome. Like the animation is great. The war scenes are really exciting. I think I'm in agreement with you that the end is a bit of a bummer, but um, but I think it's like I also think it's a period appropriate bummer. Yeah, and so I can't I can't hit the film too hard for that. And like it's not every weeknight that I sit down and watch a G-rated movie for kids and find myself as caught up in it as I was this. Like this was a ninety minutes that totally had me and i think that's uh by itself a pretty impressive accomplishment uh so I'll, i'm gonna give this four arrows i like mulan you know this movie was a jumping off point for a lot of interesting conversation between us and this happens a lot on the show i think where we get into something interesting about the movie and it sounds like we're ripping the movie apart and it's really just a jump off for us to talk about yeah culture and stuff you know Again, as the father of a nine-year-old girl, it, I know that in, the, in modern culture, in, in our contemporary scene, uh, the idea that a movie like this is this subtly pernicious influence on young girls and it makes them all think that the message from the world is that all they can do is be a wife. But my nine-year-old girl can watch a movie like this and believe that she can be the hero of her own story. You know, like we overstate the perniciousness of popular culture. And in fact, overstate the perniciousness of culture because people, you know, it is pernicious. She does as a young girl have uphill battles that other people don't face, but it isn't as simple as simple as watching Mulan uh, or watching any Disney film to create in her, a mentality. It's much less important than just the household that she grows up in and what her parents think are possible for her to help her be a fully fledged person. You know, there are a lot of things in it, like some cross dressing jokes that you wouldn't put in a movie now, but I think it was a really sort of fascinating and fun film. If you took Eddie Murphy out of it, there's a lot going on in this movie that's a lot more interesting than Frozen. But, you know, also, th this is the era where Disney started to go toward representation, right? Like Pocahontas in the mid-90s, and then we got Mulan. And Disney was, I think they got the, um, the memo or internally were working hard to lead us up to movies like Moana and I have a, a a friend who's a you know an Asian woman in her thirties who reported to me and has reported for a long time that it made a real difference to her. You know, she went to see this movie and there was a Chinese girl that was a hero, and all of a sudden she you know she wasn't living in this world where it was just a choice between Ariel and Cinderella. And I think up to that point, she had had to choose between Jasmine and and Pocahontas as to which Disney princess she could most identify with. And then and this is the this is the point of representation. And so for all of the dings we give this movie for not being like full on girl power, it's still 90 percent girl power and it's trying something. It's trying hard. At something. And I, you know, I think it's an interesting, it's interesting because Disney movies that feature 
darker skinned princesses sell le- uh, sell significantly less merchandise than Disney movies that have light skinned princesses. And yet that doesn't dissuade Disney from continuing to try to make movies with dark skinned princesses. And it's a, it's a credit we don't give to that company uh, that they are like, well, you know, we're going to sell a hundred million fewer little dolls at Christmas time because this is a movie about a Polynesian girl, but, but it's the right thing to do and the right story to tell. Yeah. It's a story to tell. We haven't told it yet and let's do it. Um, not to, you know, my ad buster self is still like, fuck Disney, <laughs> right? I mean, it's still, uh, it still furthers the cause of the di- divine right of Kings, <laughs> which I think is a bigger problem than sexism personally. And, yeah. uh, yep, that's right. Where's the socialism narrative in this? There isn't one. <laughs> yeah. What about free healthcare for the Chinese? Anyway, I do. I feel like the, some of the battle scenes in this were great. I really liked Mulan. I just liked her through the whole film, everything she did. I just was like, I like Mulan, you know, I I will follow her if it weren't for this fucking dragon. And the thing is, she didn't need the (laughs) dragon because the cricket and the horse, that was all you need. You don't need three familiars, smart horse, funny cricket. Uh, I'm going to give it four and a quarter arrows. Wow. Okay. Big score. John, did you have a guy? Well, there were, you know, there were, uh, there were the three main doofy guys. There was the guy that, for whatever reason, perennially had a black eye through the whole film. There was the big, small-headed guy that looked like um, that looked like the character from Spirited Away. And then there was the third guy, who was like a Ichabod Crane kind of stork-limbed guy. Yeah, I didn't like any of those guys. They weren't bad, but they were just guys. No, I was... I was the cricket. The cricket was my guy. I wanted so much more of that cricket. That cricket, that cricket set the matchmaker's pants on fire and then went back in his little cricket cage and closed the door. (laughs) I like that the cricket can type by stamping on a piece of paper. Fantastic. The cricket, the cricket is, is not just literate, but like literate in, in a pretty poetical Chinese because, because uh, Mushu says, you know, Take the flavor out of it. This is a military communication. And then the cricket goes and writes it differently. So the cricket had it all. It, and this movie, this movie gave us the cricket and it wasn't Jiminy cricket. It was a different yeah. kind of cricket, Chinese cricket. It was a, a ticket to China, a Chinese chicken. <laughs> My guy's the emperor. Wow. And I know it's easier to do a brave thing when you have a lot of power but I like the gesture that he made at the end in bowing to Mulan and encouraging others to bow to him. And I like when he fired his, uh, his stupid mustache administrator, as, as John called him. <laughs> uh, he may be an emperor, but I think that, that he does have a bit of a heart of gold. And I think maybe his experience with Mulan might affect some changes uh, around the empire. Wouldn't that be nice? Maybe that's the the happy ending I was hoping to have here in this movie. That would be cool. So, yeah, I just felt like there was something more to him there. Um, My guy is horny grandma. The end, huh? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, what's she using that cricket for, Ben? I want to (laughs) know. Yeah, a cricket's rubbing its leg to play sweet music. What's she rubbing? Mm. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, horny grandma ruled. 
She's great. Always love a horny grandma. Let's uh, let's pick our next movie. What do you say? All right. Okay, emptying my dice cup of some coffee dregs. Here we go. Twenty-eight. Twenty-eight. Big number twenty-eight. Twenty-eight is a John Frankenheimer film from two thousand two, set in the Vietnam conflict (laughs) path to war it is a tv movie starring michael gambon donald sutherland and alec baldwin and it's uh, about the the lbga foreign policy team debate deciding whether or not to withdraw from or escalate the vietnam war oh this is my kind of film good cast yeah oh boy we got a philip baker hall here guys and a Bruce McGill, Ben. Oh, boy. Love me some McGill. I believe I'm about to get to talk about Mick George Bundy, so I I couldn't be more excited. <laughs> uh, I love Frankenheimer. It's, a, yeah. it's surprising to see him doing a, uh, a TV movie, HBO Films. Oh, cool. Should be, should be an interesting one. Um, well, we're going to leave it with Rob's from here. So for John Roderick and Adam Pranica, I've been Ben Harrison. To the victor, go the spoiler alerts. Friendly Fire is a Maximum Fun podcast hosted by Adam Pranica, Ben Harrison, and John Roderick. The show is produced by me, Rob Schulte. Our theme music is War by Edwin Starr, courtesy of Stone Agate Music, and our podcast art is by Nick Dittmer. Would you like to hear more Friendly Fire? Last year we covered Outside the Law, a film that takes place between 1945 and 1962 and focuses on the lives of three Algerian brothers in France, set against the backdrop of the Algerian independence movement. You can also gain access to our bonus episodes by heading to MaximumFun.org join. For as little as $5 a month, not only will you receive our Porkchop episodes, you'll gain access to all Maximum Fun bonus content. And don't forget... You can now follow us on Twitter and Instagram under the handles FriendlyFireRSS. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week with another episode of Friendly Fire. Fund.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.